0: After a few weeks away, we're back in Jeremiah this morning. This is our fourth of seven weeks, looking at just a few chapters, chapters 29 to 33 of Jeremiah. Uh, as I mentioned, if you go to youtube.com slash Church, dead easy, uh, youtube.com slash church, you can find the previous messages. We've been hearing in Jeremiah, in these chapters, God's Word of hope to his people who are coming home. So just by a little way of of recap, it's been a few weeks since we've been here, let me just share a little of of the context here. The prophet Jeremiah was ministering to a people who were far from home, a needy people, a lost people, a hurting and broken people, broken in for a number of reasons, because of their own sin, certainly, in their repeated rejection of God that you can read about through the many, many chapters of Jeremiah, and then broken and struggling under the resulting judgment of God that came as a result of their pushing God away. And in Jeremiah, in the midst of many chapters which lay out this harrowing judgment, From chapters 29 to 33, we have these stunning messages of hope for God's people. And we've been thinking how, just like the people of God in Jeremiah's day, so too we are, in a sense, people who are far from home. Some of you will know that the New Testament describes us as exiles, as sojourners, travelers, traveling through a foreign land. Our our citizenship, we do not ultimately belong to the united kingdom. We ultimately belong to God's kingdom, to the kingdom of heaven. And we've been thinking also, just like the people to whom Jeremiah was writing, that we too are a sinful, needy people who need to hear these messages of hope from God. But here's the thing we not only hear them as the people of Israel and Judah did in Jeremiah's day, as as sort of messages of hope that would come, but we are a people living under these stunning promises of hope confirmed as sure and certain through the work of Jesus Christ. And in that we ourselves know that we are a people who are coming home. Not just the measly, in comparison, promise that we would be led to a certain strip of land, but we are people who, at the core of our identity, are coming home to the heart of God, finding and refinding Him Again, called to bring his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. We are people who day by day are holding on to hope that in Jesus Christ, the story is not over yet. We're people who are awaiting his return when full and final renewal and restoration will come to this world and we will dwell in perfect peace and joy with God and with one another. And we've been thinking about that within the context of this particular moment that we find ourselves in, where this is for us as a church as a country, I think as a world, to be honest, it's something of a reset as we come back together and recognize that that's an ongoing process. It's not just something that, that did, that has happened, that we're, oh, we're back now. No, no, this is going to take time. This is a journey. It's, it's not something that's fully happened. We are taking seriously or seeking to take seriously as a church family the fact that this has been and in many ways remains a very, very challenging season. And we're seeking hope as God's people coming home. Yes, in that most ultimate sense of coming home to to, to fellowship and communion and oneness and closeness with God, but also in this particular moment, as we come back together and pray and seek God together, and chat and share together, and worship together, and journey forward as exiles that He's as the exiles that He's called us to be in this land, we are coming home. There was a phrase that our dear late brother Dominic Smart used a couple of times that really struck me when he first said it. I I, uh, have to be honest, it's one of many things that Dominic said that I think about week after week after week. Uh, He used this particular phrase at least once while he was standing here preaching from Psalm 23 and commenting on the importance of finding the right tone For a sermon that was on that beautiful piece of poetry in Psalm chapter 23. Dominic was sharing how, you know, if you chop a passage like that up and analyze it in too minute detail in the wrong way, you can lose the heart of the passage. And he said this We don't want to dissect the skylark to find the song. Such a beautiful little phrase. What a gift. He was. That's a good reminder for us as to how we should come to many parts of the Scriptures. As we've considered before, the Bible is made up of uh, so many different types of literary genre. And while, for example, if you take, you know, the letters of Paul... It sometimes is necessary and appropriate to get right into the weeds of word by word, and why did he use it in this order and not that order, and and to consider it really forensically in a sense like that. So in other parts of the Scriptures, you lose something when you do that. There is a song, there is a melody of grace from the Father's heart to us, His people and sometimes the most important thing is not to chop up any given passage but you know so that we might understand the technicalities of that melody that's that's important there's a there's a place for that but sometimes it's important that we don't do that sometimes the most important thing is for us just to hear the beauty of the song let's not dissect the skylark in Jeremiah 31 to find the song much of this text in Jeremiah 31 is like that. It's beautiful poetry in our passage today. We're just going to look at verses 1 to 26 this week. Next week, we're going to look at the, the verses through to the end of the chapter. And it's full of beautiful poetry of, of a song of God's grace for his People. Listen to what Derek Kidner says of chapters 30 and 31, which kind of are one unit really. He says, "'Even Isaiah rises to no greater heights of delighted eloquence than does Jeremiah in these chapters.'" So what I'm going to seek to do today is to journey over the next few moments from the least important thing to the most important thing. I'm going to take the last five minutes of the message just to read verses 1 to 26. We're going to read bits along the way, but that's how I want to close the time. And my prayer is that in that we can hear and respond to this beautiful song of God's love for us. But before I do that, I'm just going to try and just flag a few things that stand out from the text as particularly worthy of of note, so that that might be a help when we come to, to read it. But first, before we even do that, I do want to just look briefly at a couple of things that on first reading of this passage are slightly confusing. And the reason I'm doing this is so that when we come to read it at the end, you don't stumble and get confused and get stuck there. I just want to mention them briefly so that we can then move on. So least important, Three things to help us not stumble as we hear the beauty of this song. Slightly more important, flagging four areas of God's love for us in this passage. And then most important, just hearing the beauty of God's song of grace in these words. And asking the Holy Spirit to allow them to sink deep into our souls. Yes, through this whole time, especially just as we hear God's word at the end of our time. So the first thing, just to flag up front, is that this passage is written to Israel and Judah. Darren, if you could just flash up that other picture, uh, you might remember this slide from our very first message that we looked at in this little Jeremiah series, where we looked at where this text is placed in the story of the people of Israel. And one of the things to note there is the fact of how God's kingdom was divided. So there were 10 tribes in the north who who split off from two tribes in the south. Uh, the, 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 the The northern kingdom is often referred to as Israel, or often referred to as Ephraim, as you'll find in this passage. And the two tribes to the south, Judah and Benjamin, are often just together referred to as Judah. And Jeremiah mostly focuses in this book on the people of Judah and Benjamin, but there are parts of his writings where he speaks to both, and chapter 31 is particularly one of those parts. Most references, actually, in the verses that we're going to read are are aimed at... Israel or Ephraim, as we'll see. But we can see from the start of this section, if you turn back a page or tap back to chapter 30 and verses 2 to 3, you see how both Israel and Judah are in view here. So it says there, "'Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, days are coming,' declares the Lord, "'when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah,' says the Lord." And I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. And certainly as as the chapter continues, chapter 31 continues, you can see both Israel and Judah are in view. So I just mention that in case you're confused by the different mention of who this passage is for. A simple way to express it is to say that all of God's people, all of God's people, that doesn't mean everyone, God's people, are included here. And, and, and of course, in Christ, we can include ourselves within that. Anyone who has come to Jesus and who has been made alive in Christ Jesus are part of the people of God. This isn't just, and the point of, this, of highlighting this is that this isn't just for some of God's people, but this is for all of God's people. That should be an encouragement to us. Second thing I just want to flag, look at verse 15. There's a a curious verse here where it says, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. What is this reference to Rachel? Well, some of you will remember that God, as he chose a nation for himself, did it through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who then made up the tribes of Israel, and Rachel was the wife of Jacob. And uh, Rachel was one of his wives. She was the mother of Joseph, through, through whom his sons Ephraim and Manasseh came to be born, and they had a particular significance for the people of Israel. So that, again, Chapter 31, more than any other chapter, I think, in Jeremiah, focuses on on the people of Israel, the northern kingdom. And here, what, what Jeremiah is doing in verse 15 is he is poetically highlighting the devastation of the exile of Israel. As if the mother of this people, Rachel herself, though long deceased, weeps from beyond the grave. So awful is this what has happened to the people of Israel, to what they have brought on themselves. And the other reason I just wanted to flag it is because as we read it later, in case it jumps out you is, I feel like I've read that verse before, but I don't really feel like I know Jeremiah 31 off by heart. It's because this verse is quoted in Matthew chapter two which is where it's referred to when Herod is trying to kill the Lord Jesus and he murders the babies in that region. This verse is referred to. And, and what seems to have happened was this has become something of a, of a proverb for any ill treatment that was aimed at Jewish children. That seems to be what has happened in Matthew chapter 2, why this verse has been referenced there. But we will see God's response to this terrible grief. So there's this weeping for Rachel, and then, just to, just to tell you the end of the story before we get there, look at verse 16. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. We'll get there. Hold that thought. And then finally is in verse 22. Let's read verse 22 together. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter Israel? For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth, a woman encircles circles. A man. Now, here's the thing. Truthfully, no one really knows exactly what this means. There's all sorts of ideas, but the cleverest of clever people basically go, yeah, we don't really know. Um, a few ideas that it might be, many ancient commentators uh, believed that it was a prediction of the Virgin Mary carrying Jesus in her womb, the woman encircling the man and a sort of messianic prophecy. But most commentators, to be honest with you, over the last centuries have felt that that goes beyond what Jeremiah was was pointing to. So you can wrestle with this for yourself. The ESV translation there, a woman encircles a man, is is an allusion. The the way that they've understood this verse is to suggest that it's about the weak overcoming the strong. So encircling could be a military term where, you know, encircled by ramparts and things like that. And this verse is saying a woman encircles a man, which is unusual in that context, of course, and uh, and in our context as well. And the context here is to say the point is that Israel is overcoming their captors. That's what the ESV are pointing at. But instead of encircles, finally, the word can also mean embraces or clings to. A woman embraces a man. So some think that this is a better translation. I think If you've got the NIV, it's what the NIV or the NLT or the message point to. And it's a picture that alludes to this, this idea of Israel and God as a married couple, which we hear a lot about in the Old Testament, particularly Hosea. And there's many touch points between Jeremiah and Hosea. So while Israel had abandoned God, this verse then speaks of her return to God. So the NIV says, the woman will return to the man. The message is similar. Or the NLT puts it even more plainly, Israel will embrace her God. So that's how I'm going to read it. As we, as we read this, I'll read the ESV translation, but I'll also read that NLT, because just personally, if, you want, if you're interested, I'm, I, I feel that like that's the most helpful, most obvious uh, translation, partly because of the context of verse, part of verse 21, where he says, return, O virgin Israel which is quite a stark thing to say when Israel had abandoned God, had been adulterous as a nation. Here, they're called virgin Israel, and the call is to return. And therefore, I think the best translation is a woman embraces a man. And it's this beautiful picture of God and his people coming back together, God in his grace. But you can figure that out for yourself and let me know what you think if you're interested. So just before we read the passage... I want to focus on just four wonderful aspects of God's love in these verses. First thing is this. God's love acknowledges our need. God's love acknowledges our need. The community of faith, the family of God, including us here in Hillview, is a place for those who know that they are in need. For those who know they don't have it all together. The Scriptures do not hide that reality that we, as human beings, are in deep, great need. So neither should we hide that reality, by the way, week by week. This should be a place where we can come and be honest about what kind of week we've had, about what kind of year or decade or life we've had with all our sorrows, struggles, and difficulties. This chapter starts by pointing back to God's rescue of His people from slavery in Egypt. Look at verse 2. "'Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword,' found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. What a beautiful phrase that is. Grace in the wilderness. I don't know about you, but for me, the wilderness is a wonderful metaphor for when we're struggling, but we don't really know why. I'm sure all of us know that sometimes in the depths of despair, we're not able to verbalize to eloquently express why we're struggling. But we just know our hearts are in turmoil and difficulty within us. And this, this, this idea of being in the wilderness speaks to that. Being lost, being confused, being directionless, being unsure, being hopeless. Where am I going? How will I get out of this place of barrenness and, and difficulty? That's the first thing. God acknowledges that place, but also in his love understands that not only is it difficult to be in the wilderness, but even the journey out from the wilderness is very difficult and painful as well. And maybe, I I think that's maybe where a lot of us in this church are just now. Verse 9, listen to this, with weeping they shall come. I mean, come where? Come home, come home to God. Why are they weeping, though? Because the journey is hard from that place of devastation. God says, with weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn some of us perhaps sense this. God is calling me back. God has not let go of me, but it doesn't look great. It doesn't feel great. The the journey home is one of tears, one of difficulty, one of struggle. And though God is leading us, still we're we're crying out with these pleas for mercy all the way. And it's interesting how it's worded, right? It's actually in those pleas from mercy that this is how God leads us back. With pleas for mercy, I will lead them back. As we cry out to God, as we acknowledge our need of him, it's in that place that God draws us back into his heart, brings us home. There are many reasons why we might feel in that place of grief and lostness. But certainly, one of them, the next point that we see in this chapter, is is the grief that we feel when we consider the shame that we've brought upon ourselves. Look at verse 18. I have heard Ephraim grieving. And then, this is now a quote from those people who are grieving and struggling. You have disciplined me, God, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented, and after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed, and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. God's love acknowledges our need, and so should we not least our need of God's discipline in our lives, our need of God's restoring hand day by day, dealing with the shame and the disgrace that we feel because of the way we have acted towards Him. While some of the struggles that we're dealing with in these days, are coming at us from external forces. Certainly, friends, we need to again and again acknowledge our own sinfulness before God individually and indeed somehow together as we pray, as we share, as we meet together week by week to acknowledge we have pushed this God of ours away. We have wronged Him. We have idolized other things as more important than Him And friends, this is God's love for us. He does not let us stay in that place of devastation, of shame and disgrace, but He calls it out so He can lead us out from that place. God's love acknowledges our need. If you're feeling like, man, everyone else is is struggling, no one knows the little old issues that I'm facing just now, God does. God hears your tears. God knows your struggles. God knows your difficulties. That is lovely and helpful in itself to know that the creator of the universe cares about what you're going through. Secondly, God's love always comes first. You'll see what I mean as we go on. Look back to verse two. I have loved you Sorry, that's verse three. Verse two. The people, God says, who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Do you see what comes first? This is different. To the good news, the way that we would often perhaps express it, the good news that I often understood was something along the lines of, if you seek God, God is faithful in His love, and He'll share that love with you. Now, all those things are true, but they are incomplete, because they're in the wrong order. God's love comes first. It's his love that holds his covenant commitment to maintain, to continue, as it's put there, his faithfulness. Let's read it again. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. We see this in the very heart of how God has called a people. To himself. Do you remember in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God explains why it was that he chose the people of Israel. And it says there, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. not because of anything in how we have approached God, but He has chosen us because He loves us. I know some of you cherish the verse, Psalm 18, verse 19. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me. Why? Because He, Katie, finish it. Delighted in me. me. It's Katie's favorite verse, right? He rescued me because he delighted in me. How often we think of it the other way around. Oh, God, in his his kindness, as I approach him, will, will maybe let me come into his presence. Oh, and maybe then if I jump through a certain number of faith hoops, he will delight in me. That's not what it says. Because God delights in us. That's why he rescued us. It's exactly the same in Jeremiah chapter 31. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I am constrained in my covenant faithfulness because I've chosen this people, not because of anything good that they've done, but because of my love spilling out from who I am. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Therefore, because I love these people, just because I love you, I'm not going to give up on you. God says, this is the glory of of God's grace, dear friends, that will be the centerpiece of our worship forevermore. God's love always comes first. In your pain, in your need, remember the most ultimate reality that draws us back home is not our response, but most ultimately it is God's initiating love. Importantly, no matter how far from home we are, no matter how great our need, look at verse eight. Behold, I will bring them from the north country, gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman and she who is in labor, a great company, they shall return here. So great is God's love, no matter how how far off you are. He draws us himself. Do you remember Jesus' parable of the lost son? He was journeying home, wondering what he might say that he might be allowed to live in the household as a servant. But while, it says in Luke 15, 20, he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And in that, he was welcomed home not as a servant, but as a son, an heir, a child of the King. Let God's love come first today. Thirdly, God's love is intense. Look at verse 9. It's very unusual in the Hebrew Scriptures for God to be thought of as a father. Of course, in Christ, we're adopted into the family of God, and we live and pray as Jesus taught us to in in relationship with God, our Father. But this was unusual to that point, and twice in this passage, we see that God loves us, not just as some impersonal force that we feel or a love that a ruler might have for his people, but God loves us as a perfect Father. Loves a vulnerable, needy child. Verse 9, I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel. And Ephraim is my firstborn. And it's even more wonderful in verse 20. After this grief that Ephraim has expressed, that we looked at in verses 18 to 19. Listen to God's response. You know, verse 19: I was ashamed and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Listen to God's response. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. What language that is. Some of us, sadly in the room here, can't ever imagine hearing those sorts of words from a father who loved us. Can't ever really imagine using such language. But all of us deep down know the wonder of these words from any loving person spoken truly, let alone from the creator of the universe spoken in infinite perfection and truth and faithfulness. It's almost too much to understand. It's underlined by that phrase where it says, my heart yearns for Him. Do you know what the literal translation of that is? My bowels rumble for Him. There you go. You can say that to someone you love later on this afternoon. Lindsay, my bowels rumble for you. But the point here, let me just bring some clarity to what that means. Here's a commentator way smarter than me. John Arthur Thompson says of this passage, this very vivid anthropomorphism depicts God's stomach being churned up with longing for his son. God is not neutral about you. God is not somewhat inclined to forgive and show love to you. God's love for his children is intense and overwhelming. You are his darling child. We, together, are his darling child. Receive that word of hope today. And then, briefly, in light of that, the final thing before we read the passage is God, God's love brings us m- from mourning to joy. Our ultimate hope, friends, we make a big play of this, but our ultimate hope is not that our pain is seen or acknowledged, as powerful and helpful as that is, but what we need is for our pain and brokenness to be made right. And throughout this passage, this is our hope. You could underline verses 4 to 7, or 16 to 17, or 23 to 25. Look out for those when we read it in a message. Just for in a moment, just for now, I want to read verses 11 to 13. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob, has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, over the young of the flock and of the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden. They shall languish no more. Then shall the young woman rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. What, what a calling. Did you, did you catch that beautiful little phrase in verse, where is it? 18? 12, sorry, they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord. Wouldn't that be a good thing for us to be as Hillview Community Church? Hillview Community Church, colon, radiant over the goodness of the Lord. You in your office tomorrow, in your home tomorrow, with your friends and family tomorrow, radiant over the goodness of the Lord. Friends, it is good that God sees our heart, that he sees our tears. It's good that God meets us through what Christ has done on the cross in our shame and disgrace. But the glory... The glory of the good news of Jesus Christ is that he doesn't just acknowledge the chaos and heartache that swirl around about us, but that he is the one who is seated on the throne who says, behold, I am making all things new. Listen to this from Revelation chapter 21. It says, Things new. Friends, in this we will be satisfied more than just in the effects of what God will bring about, but primarily in Him who will bring these wonderful things about. Look at verse 13 again. It says, I'll turn their mourning into joy, I'll comfort them, I'll give them gladness for sorrow, I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance. But here's the key thing my people shall be satisfied with my goodness declares the Lord. That's what it comes back to. That's what it all comes back to. This is the truth of God's good news this morning. We will be brought home from mourning to joy so that we can cherish and love and wonder at and worship him for the goodness of what he has achieved for us as our great Redeemer King who welcomes us home. So, now, the most important thing. We're just going to read these 26 verses together. I just pray that those thoughts have been a help and encouragement to you. But really, this is God's word. And I just want you to hear the beauty of this passage. Do what you need to do. Follow along. uh, Close your eyes. Whatever is most helpful. I want to encourage you. Open your heart to the Holy Spirit. And maybe just ask him to highlight one little phrase, one little verse that you can take with you into this coming week that will bring you hope in the love of God this morning and this coming week. Father, we thank you for your word. What a gift. Thank you that it draws us home to you, Holy Spirit. We open our hearts to you now as we hear the wonder of love. Speak to us, we pray. At that time, in the latter days, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel. And they shall be my people thus says the lord the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when israel sought for rest the lord appeared to him from far away i have loved you with an everlasting love therefore i have continued my faithfulness to you again i will build you and you shall be built o virgin israel again you shall adorn yourself with tambourines And shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim. Arise and let us go up to Zion. To the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord. Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob. And raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say... O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Among them the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman, and she who is in labor, together, a great company. They shall return here. With weeping they shall come. And with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him, and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock." For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young woman rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children she refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented, and after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed, and I was confounded, because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Set up road markers for yourself. Make yourselves guideposts. Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. Return, O virgin Israel, return to these your cities. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth. A woman encircles a man, or Israel will embrace her God. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together and the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. For I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul. I will replenish. Hear this, you who are struggling to sleep in these days. At this, I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. Thank you, God, for your word.